Good morning, Grace. This morning we are going to be hearing God address us from his word in Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 23, through to chapter 3, verse 6. So Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, I believe there are some uh, Bibles, uh, if you haven't got one and you want one to, to look at as we look at this passage together, you can stick a hand up, I believe. Um, and when you get one of those, uh, Mark's gospel is toward the end of the Bible. So it's the, the, um, got a big, thick Old Testament chunk at the beginning, and Mark comes uh, a little after that. Um, someone around you might help you find that as well. So um, do join in as we read this passage together, and then uh, I will pray. So we'll look at Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. One Sabbath he, that is Jesus, was going through the cornfields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked round at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we ask that as uh, the words uh, that we have sung or have been sung around us, uh, the words that we have seen already this morning, the words that we now see and hear directly from your word, Father, I pray that we would attend to your word. Father, I ask that my words might be your words as your spirit speaks and that you would take your word and have it bear fruit in our lives, that we would receive your word this morning, not just as one more word, but as good news that refreshes our souls and enlivens us for the life that we live. So Father, give us your grace, your goodness, your patience and care 
as we hear from you this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I think about this text on Sabbath and rest and peace, uh, trying to think about the urgency of Jesus' rest, that is, the way he rests, the way he does Sabbath, rest, and uh, the rest that he invites and opens up to us. I was considering the fact that a few days from now will be Veterans Day, or where I come from, Remembrance Day. The 11th of November, uh, the 11th minute of the 11th hour, is when Armistice, um, a peace accord, was signed at the end of the First World War, 1918. Peace broke out. We celebrate Veterans Day, we celebrate Remembrance Day, we celebrate that not as a celebrate, celebration of war and all the horror that war is, but precisely as a celebration of peace. Peace is what we are ordered to. Peace is what we want. Peace is, how, uh, is the conditions of how we thrive. Peace is good news. Peace is worth celebrating. Of course, as we come to the 11th of November, as we come to Veterans Day, we recognize that that peace signing in 1918 that was a signing that was meant to be about the end of the war to end all wars manifestly has not been that. We know that we live in a time of conflict, indeed of military conflict, of war, of conflict where we experience breakdown in our society, where we experience breakdown in our families, where we experience breakdown even within our own souls. We know that we don't live that peace. And so sometimes peace and rest seems to us like hollow words. At the same time, sometimes peace can be announced as new that is a threat. If peace were to break out on a mammoth scale, that would threaten probably even the jobs of some here uh, with contracts or connections to uh, the industrial military complex of our, of our age. Um, if peace were to break out, if people were to live according to God's will, what would the Pharisees do? who were there precisely self-appointed in Israel, they had no particular legal standing, but they were self-appointed guardians of how best to live, who had elaborated from God's law, which is here in his word, had elaborated ways in which this Sabbath rule must be kept. 39 laws, 39 things that are excluded. You must not do this, you must not do that. When Jesus comes and seems to subvert Sabbath expectations, that's a threat to the Pharisees. So much so that we see at the end of this passage that uh, what they have in view is not life, but death, and precisely death to Jesus. In fact, they'll even get in league with their enemies, the Herodians, so as to bring this about. The Herodians, who precisely weren't Sabbath keepers, who are in all sorts of corrupt ways involved with Romans and Gentiles around them, but the Pharisees wanted this Jesus out of the way because of, he was a threat to them. Why? Well, what do we understand from this passage about him as a threat? 
In, in the same way that uh, the end of uh, World War I posed a threat to uh, European social order. So any of you who are Downton Abbey fans will know that uh, when that war ends and the massive suffering that has been inflicted on a conscript generation of the lower classes, um, the, the upper classes can't maintain their way of running society. People will just not have it anymore. Peace has broken out and it needs to be a peace that is for flourishing of all and not just those with landed inheritance and so on. Peace is a threat oftentimes to vested interests. Where do we stand in relation to conflict and peace? Where do we stand in relation to the Sabbath rest that Jesus is promising? Sabbath was in a sense the, the most obvious distinctive of God's people at the time of Jesus. That they maintained Sabbath as a time of worship, also as a badge of their identity, that they were being faithful. So they would not work they would not travel. They certainly wouldn't reap or harvest crops. They took seriously the Sabbath. Why? Because God's word told them to. So that we can read in Exodus 35 that breaking of the Sabbath incurs the penalty of death. Wow. Death. Breaking the Sabbath, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? But it does tell us that if Sabbath is about the peace and the good and the flourishing and the rest of a community, by breaking Sabbath, you are destroying the good of a flourishing life. And that, in God's word, incurs death. So this is serious, the kind of penalty that you would level for the worst disruption of society and of worship, is what is the matter of Sabbath. That's why the Pharisees are so interested and excited and invested in maintaining Sabbath. So as we walk through this passage together, I have three main concerns, three points that will guide you through. And the first one is the most extensive. As we think about the urgency of Jesus' rest, the most important thing we do is observe Jesus. So we're going to observe Jesus, and that is what the gospel narratives invite us to do, and that is what we should concentrate our effort on. We'll observe Jesus, and we'll observe his observance of the Sabbath, what that looks like. Once we've done that, we will very briefly think about how we would obtain the rest that Jesus offers. So we'll observe Jesus, we'll think about how we would obtain the rest that he offers how we would come to know the Shabbat Shalom, the peace of the Sabbath. And out of that, we'll think about how we would obey in freedom the good news mandate that we encounter. So we'll be observing, we'll be thinking about obtaining, and we'll come to think about how we obey. So let's turn first to, uh, most importantly, observing Jesus. And the first thing to note about Jesus in relation to this Sabbath question is not that he is a trendy uh, kind of radical who's trying to disrupt religion just for the sake of it, to cause a stir. Right? Jesus is not too hip for religion. Jesus is there in the second part of our passage in the synagogue. He recognizes the importance of worshiping God, his Father, of worshiping Yahweh. And yet the way he does it 
He's different to the expectations, certainly, of the Pharisees around him. Now, Jesus, as he observes Sabbath, does so precisely with community in view. We observe that as we notice that when his disciples are accused, the accusation is addressed by Jesus. When his disciples are accused, Jesus knows that he is the object of the accusation. Whatever they're doing together, the life they are living together is one that involves him and his followers. And Sabbath is about community. That is, it should at least tell us as we look forward to what we might expect that the rest that Jesus offers, the Sabbath he invites us to, is not the kind of rest that our individualistic society would tell us about. That cruise that you could enjoy on your own, leave the kids behind or leave the work worries behind or just, just enjoy it or the spa day or the round of golf or whatever it would be. This is a corporate reality. So when his disciples are accused, Jesus is accused too. What are his disciples accused of? They're accused of plucking ears of corn. That is working on the Sabbath. They might already have broken Sabbath law in their traveling. Uh, We don't know precisely the journey that Jesus is traveling, but he was going through the cornfields. Perhaps that is already breach of Sabbath. They weren't just walking where they needed to go to worship. They were traveling. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. But certainly once they're plucking ears of corn, aha, they're now harvesting. They're engaged in agricultural work. And it's worth noticing what this is at this moment. So on one account, it's work. On another account, it looks like exactly what the law of God that's shaped around Sabbath intends. That is, they're gleaning. They are those who, without immediate access to resources, the law provides for the poor, the marginalized, who can come to the fields and, uh, and glean what is left from the harvest because you're not supposed to have harvested all to the max. You leave the gleanings there to be, to be plucked. Well, in a sense, this is what the disciples are doing. And I think that points us to a good truth that uh, the rest and Sabbath injunctions in Scripture and that Jesus commands are precisely um, those that have in view those who have least access to power, to resources, the poor. And Jesus and his disciples are at least identifying in their lifestyle with them. And yet, of course, it's not like the disciples were going to starve, right? This isn't a life and death matter. And that's where Sabbath could be set aside, life and death. But the accusation doesn't have that in view. It doesn't think that's the case. When Jesus hears the accusation to his community, to his disciples, he responds by focusing this question of peace and rest and Sabbath on himself. I mean, he does that in the first story just by answering the question himself. He stands in. Uh, We'll come to what he says in a moment. It's curious. But certainly it's a case in the the second instance. Uh, Jesus knows he's being looked at, uh, that he would be accused, and he stands into that situation. After all, he has said, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, what you understand rest to be, what you understand flourishing individual and community life is all about this one, me, 
the Son of Man. The rest that Jesus is talking about, this Sabbath, is of course the Sabbath that God gives. It's in his way of creating that we have creation in six days and then the Sabbath day of rest that is holy. Of course, it's not a day off. It's not that God got tired and so set up Sabbath. And it's not even that uh, having made the splendor of creation, which is humankind in his own image, really there was nothing more to do. Rather, having made all that he has made, Sabbath is precisely the destination of all of creation. Humans aren't at the pinnacle of creation when they're created. They're at the pinnacle of creation when they enjoy Sabbath, when they enjoy rest and peaceful community with one another and with God. Sabbath is not the kind of tail end of creation where it kind of tails off, but is the pinnacle of what God is doing. And just so when God brings his people out of Egypt, he frees them to worship him, he liberates them, he saves them, he delivers them, precisely so that they would enjoy worship and rest, so that the Ten Commandments are given So in a way that you identify God and you honor God and you keep the Sabbath. And it's all of a piece. And the law continues and talks about not only the Sabbath every week, but the Sabbath year, the seventh year, and then the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the Jubilee, where, again, provision is made out of God's abundance. This is a people who, after all, in their history, know that God provided for them manna in the wilderness. Bread come down from heaven. And yet on the Sabbath day, he didn't. Why? Because he'd given them enough the day before. God gives rest and he gives plenty. And so they didn't have to work because God had provided. And they were to trust this very God. And we get, get confused about this. We, we can't really get our heads around this because our lives don't seem to work like that. Our fridges don't allow us to live like, like that. We could store up enough food to feed a small army for two months in our fridges. So we don't need to depend on the Lord. And when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we might nod to what we think we've got in the freezer or at least what we could buy in the store. We think living life restfully is about having it all managed, having it all prudentially kind of laid out so that we've got things set aside for a rainy day, so that we have the career choices available to us that we're looking for, so that we have the relationships that we think will make us uh, happy. And we think we can manage that. But of course, Sabbath is all about surrendering our management and our control and allowing God to give abundantly. Allowing debts to be cancelled. Wouldn't that be good news? Those of you who are still looking ahead to paying off student loans, those of you who are doing that right now, those of you who are paying mortgages, those of you who are paying off cars, debt cancellation. Wow, what crazy, reckless society would do that? Well, a society that trusts in God and His provision and is willing to live that. That is what Sabbath looks like. And any of us who know the no indebtedness, that's the framework of our society, know what good news that sounds like. But of course that does sound reckless and that's why Jesus' illustration to answer the Pharisees in this first incident is also interesting because we see him say, well, didn't David 
go up to the house of God and, and, and eat the bread of the presence that only the priests are supposed to eat? And the answer is yes, he did. Of course, it's an embarrassing story. We don't want to be, the Pharisees don't want to be embarrassed by David, but David uh, was on the run from Saul, who was out to murder him. So it's not picturing a good picture of the uh, community of God anyway. And uh, as uh, David is on the fly, he goes to the priest at uh, a place called Nob, and uh, he, he's desperate. And so he concocts a story. He lies. He says, oh, the king sent me, um, and I was in such a rush that uh, it was so urgent that I, I came without bread. I didn't even bring a sword. So what have you got around here for me and my men? Right? Uh, well, that's, that's odd. Right? Jesus going to this story of David lying. Um, obviously, went to the priest because he probably couldn't trust other people around. Uh, and so then he eats this sanctified bread that was laid out every week that was devoted for the priests for their provision. And David eats it and his men and off he goes. Right? Um, but, uh, I mean, I probably, I'm not sure I would know how to respond to Jesus raising that question. Um, I'm not even sure I know for you how we should respond to that. But I do know that what David demonstrates is an urgency that seems to uh, compel him to act outside of what, what he knows he should do. Is this about Jesus overturning the Sabbath or saying, I can just do whatever I want? Or is it rather pointing to the urgency, not about David's situation, which is just messy, right? And if anyone here lives a messy life, you can identify with David. If, I don't think I'm being too accusing to say, if any of you have ever lied out of expediency, even though you realize that you probably oughtn't to, then you know David. And you know about urgency. But here the urgency is not focused on you and getting your life kind of just about held together, but about Jesus. His urgency. He is the one who is going to decide what is most important. And Sabbath is about him. And because it's about him, it's about us. He is the son of man. He is the representative of humanity. That's the identity that Jesus adopts. And so he confesses what we've already seen, that Sabbath is not about following rules. Because we're not made for Sabbath keeping, but rather Sabbath is for us. It's tell us of our flourishing before God and before others. And just so Jesus says he's Lord even of the Sabbath. So both there as the human Jesus, identifying with us, but equally as the Jesus who is saying, and will go on much more clearly through the gospel to say, I am God. I am the one who made Sabbath. Jesus is saying the urgency of who he is and what his mission is, is what counts in this situation. And so we think about what Jesus does. Throws out this puzzling word, claims to be Lord of the Sabbath, and then he goes into the synagogue. He goes into worship. Well, of course. Sabbath orients us to worship. The urgency of Jesus' rest is, points us to the good of worship. And so we see there that the Pharisees are out to watch him, out to catch him. Is he going to break the Sabbath again? Right? But now, not just in the cornfields, but now in the presence of the most public place in town, in the synagogue. And so they watch this man with a withered hand. Who is this man? We don't know his name. 
We know nothing about him apart from his condition. I mean, that just tells us of his marginal status, right? Because um, people who are your peers or people who you look, look up to, you know their name, you know the stuff they do, you're interested in them, but the people who are beneath you and below you, they're just examples of a category, right? A disabled person, a mentally ill person, an illegal immigrant, a foreigner, a child. Right? You just can just write them off into categories. This man, all we know, he's got a withered hand. Was it because he'd suffered a stroke? Experiencing partial paralysis? Did he have severe arthritis? Did he have broken bones? We don't know. We know nothing about him. He doesn't say anything. And yet, he, to the Pharisees, is just a pawn in their game of accusation. They look out and think, ah, we'll catch Jesus. He's serving them as a tool. But in Jesus' eye, he's not a tool. He is a person. And so he addresses him. Come here. And Jesus uses the Sabbath to reverse the ill of his disease, of his brokenness. You see, the Sabbath would allow you to save a life. But this isn't life-saving. This man isn't about to die of his withered hand. And yet the life that Jesus comes to bring, the rest that he offers, the Sabbath that he promises, is a full flourishing, a fullness of life, and to have it abundantly. And so he asks, is the Sabbath about doing good or harm, saving a life or killing? And they don't want to answer. They know the answer. Of course it's about life. Of course it's about doing good. But they've got their legal restrictions. They're tied in a knot. Jesus is here the life-giving God of the Sabbath. As he identifies with us as son of man, and yet as he can reverse the effects of our brokenness. We ought to want to obtain the rest that he offers We ought to want to obey it. Over against any notion that we might have that rest, Sabbath for us, is something that we can secure for ourselves. If only we had enough status, we'd be okay. If we earned enough money, we'd be able to manage our lives. If we could get that career, if we could get married, or if we could get divorced, then our lives would be much more organized and and coherent, and we could marshal our life until we die. But Jesus offers a Sabbath that is fuller than that. So we've looked and we've observed Jesus in the context of thinking through Sabbath. Let's turn to think about how we might obtain the rest that he holds out. What does it mean to meet this one who's Lord of Sabbath? How could we enjoy the rest that he might hold out for us? Well, we've recognized already that with the David example that it might be appropriate to imagine this even if we haven't got everything together. Even if we're not coming to church thinking, I've complied with all the evangelical rules for how a life must be lived in the last week, whatever you might imagine those to be. Precisely we need to hear Jesus. And we obtain this rest by together hanging out with Jesus. By being those who... Just as the disciples are with Jesus, then also the man with the withered hand, when he's addressed, come here, he does. We approach Jesus. 
We recognize the goodness of God at work in Jesus. And what we do quite simply, and this is why this is the shortest little part of the sermon, what we do to obtain rest is simply stretch out our hand. We stretch out our hearts. There is precisely nothing, just as Israel was not called to be the Sabbath people of God because of its merit, there is precisely nothing that this man has to do for him to be healed. There's nothing he has to contribute. Rather, stretch out your hand, and he stretched out his hand, and he was healed. The rest that Jesus offers us in the brokenness of our hearts, in our spirits, in our emotional lives, in our finances, our relationships, in our society, in our politics, our economics, all that healing that flows out of the simple response to his offering of rest. If you genuinely don't know rest this morning in Jesus, whether you are a follower of him for many years or whether you've never thought of being a follower of Jesus and are just kind of tagging along, keeping company, see what this is like. Rest is not something that you have to build up to. It's not something you have to achieve and then I can become a follower of Jesus. If I get everything right, if I've gone to the right classes. But no, if you are willing to hear that your life is broken, that your relationship with God and others is, is broken, that the society you live in is broken, and it's not difficult to confess, then you may receive Jesus' rest. You may stretch out your heart to him. Now, did this man with a wither hand ever encounter problems again in his life? Most certainly, Yes. Do Christians, as they enter into the, the rest that Jesus offered to reorder our priorities, do we encounter difficulties? Most certainly, yes. But do we do so now in the abundance and trusting a God of Sabbath? That is what Jesus calls us to do. Enter into his rest and do so urgently. Precisely because you can't, by law or keeping your own goals, get yourself there. You can't achieve that rest. And if any of you are of the, of the mind to strive for things and try and try harder, you know this is the case. And so then, if we have observed Jesus and we've considered how simple it is to obtain the rest that he offers, then what sense does it make to talk of obedience? Surely, uh, what I've just said about obtaining rest tells us obedience isn't the point. But this is the good thing about good news. It liberates us to live in the light of it. Not because it's a law to fulfill, but it's a life to live, to flourish in. It's Sabbath, where you're not striving to create, but to enjoy the new creation life that God has. How are we doing this as disciples under Jesus' easy yoke and burden that's light? Just think about how you may be approaching the reality that is hitting you on the calendar of Thanksgiving, followed swiftly by Christmas. Um, time of joy and harmony and peace and goodwill to all, or not. Time of extreme busyness, um, a time where things get hectic, a time where the strains in relationships come to the fore as you have to gather with people you'd rather not gather with, and yet convention tells you you ought to love them and so there you are. 
And that might be true of family, that might be true of church, let's be honest. That might be true of your workplace Christmas party that you don't feel you can duck out of, and yet, how do you, how do you endure it? Or if you really enjoy it, how do you enjoy it well and not poorly? Well, part of the answer is not to give you an answer. It's not to say, oh, this is the rule for doing it. But to rather reckon that we do so out of Sabbath rest, that we do so in the privilege of not having rules set for us, of being able to live cheerfully and freely, to try and navigate together as a community of the church what it means to live out that freedom. Precisely because we experience tension and we don't always get it right and we come to a God who forgives us nevertheless because he is this God of Sabbath rest and grace. What about being defined by the worship that we're frantically getting ready for rather than our work or our jobs or even our hope for a different job or our hope for a job? So much of our sense of ourself is ordered around our economic activity. And yet Sabbath tells us, no, economic activity, whenever it comes, flows out of the abundance of a world that God is continually providing for. So don't define yourself by your work or what your work was if you're retired or how you understand yourself. Maybe, maybe good news is the last thing you expect to hear on a Sunday morning. As you think about obeying good news, you do want to be told what to do. Because part of how church functions for you is that you get to get another injected dose of guilt to tell you how to work harder, how to be good. And you're frustrated that I haven't really told you exactly what to do out of the sermon. But that's the the goodness of God's grace. That's the goodness of the freedom that we have to explore Sabbath living, to to work out what humanly together flourishing looks like. Maybe you are experiencing life-givingness in context of life, rejoicing those. Celebrate, party, that's good. But trust God for your fulfillment, not your own social life. My week um, has been... Very busy, Uh, and I'm sure that many of your weeks have been busy in all sorts of different ways. Uh, It was a comfort to me when I sat uh, opposite Dave Talley at a lunch, work lunch on uh, Tuesday, and he uh, told me he was praying for me for my sermon this week, Uh, and that was a comfort because I'd forgotten that I was actually preaching this week, and um, (laughs) and I thanked him. Uh, I didn't give it away then, but I thanked him, and and then I started thinking. Okay, I've been thinking about this passage for a long time, but when am I actually going to prepare this sermon? Um, and, uh, and so uh, yesterday um, was a wonderfully full day, birthday party at nine, rugby that I coach from 11 till four, birthday party from or three till five, and then another birthday party, seven till 11. And just, wow, what a fun, exciting week. And, and this was my sermon um, and you, you can't really see it. It's got the rugby score on the other side. Um, God, how are you going to provide for me in this, in this busyness? How are you going to provide for us in this busyness? Well, my job involves thinking about the Bible and theology. You, you think, oh, come off it. You know, 
you've actually had a, an okay week. You enjoy what you, you've had these fun experiences. You enjoy your work. My work is, is miserable, you might be thinking. Um, I'm not valued in my work. I don't get to, th- to have Christian meditation in my work. I'm just trying to survive. I'm going to see if I'm going to survive the next job cuts. I'm not valued because I'm a woman, and this is a workplace that really values men. Uh, I'm not valued because I don't join in the conversations that the, the social hub of life revolves around. I'm not valued because people don't think I work because I'm at home. These are the realities. People don't think I have a flourishing life because I'm single. These are the realities. However, we find ourselves thinking about what rest ought to be for us. These are the reality of the weeks we come from and the weeks we're going into. How do we hear Jesus' urgent call to rest as good news? Rest is about God's peace. That's ultimate. It's there for us, and it's something we can taste even now. It's about being reconciled, about being healed, just as this man with the withered hand is healed. And we know we need healing. We know we need reconciliation. We know if you are already in Christ that you are a new creation, but you're not there yet. You do enjoy a new Sabbath rest, but you don't enjoy it yet. But let's assure ourselves that Jesus, who is the Son of Man, who is fully human, but also the Lord of the Sabbath, who takes all our brokenness and disorder and the violence and the unrest upon himself on the cross and then rises to new life to free us from ourselves and from the world and from the devil is one who we can come to simply by stretching out our heart. And and I want to invite as I pray now that we uh, invite us all to stretch out our hearts to receive that rest, to delight in that rest and then go out from here talking about how we struggle in that rest together. And yet we look to the one who's Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Father God, we need rest. We crave it. Some of us because of sleepless nights. Some of us because of anxiety. Some of us because uh, the joys of life are so busily crowding in on us we seem uh, too occupied. Some of us through ill health. We're hurt because we're not at rest. Father, in all the ways in which we crave rest, may we come to you this morning and see that we find rest in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you give your son to die for us and that all we need to do is stretch out our hearts. That it's not about having all the answers, having all the laws laid out before us, uh, living the perfectly functional, obedient Christian life, whatever that would mean, but rather being willing to enter into your rest. Move in our hearts, Father God, by your Spirit, to renew in us a joy in your abundance and provision that we meet in Christ. And we pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.